This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. I'm so excited to be talking today to Annie Duke, former world champion poker player, ABD in the University of Pennsylvania's own psychology PhD program, co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, runner-up on the 2009 Celebrity Apprentice, best-selling author of the book Thinking in Bets, and author of the new book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Annie, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to be talking to you. I'm a huge admirer of yours. So. Aw, aw. Mutual Admiration Society, that's very <laughs> kind of you to say. Um, first, Annie, I wanted to ask if you could tell me a little bit about what motivated you to write this book. Why this book and why now? Oh, gosh, I, I feel like there's kind of two separate answers to that. And I, I think it starts a little bit with Thinking in Bats, which is why did I write that book, which then leads to why did I write this book. So essentially, you know, when I was doing my Ph.D. work at Penn, um, I was studying learning. Um, and what I was thinking about at that time was, uh, how do you learn in, in systems that are noisy and no pun intended, I was specifically looking at language acquisition, which has noise of one type, but, but I was thinking about noise of the other, which is, uh, when you have these very uncertain mappings between underlying concepts and for example, the words that somebody might uh, be referring to. Um, so, but, you know, I was broadly also exposed to like John Barron uh, and his work in, in judgment and decision-making. And generally in, in cognitive science, what you're thinking about is these kind of mapping problems. Um, that's mostly what you're, you're thinking about. So I went off and became a poker player, which is a whole other story. And really what I came headlong up against was a decision-making problem that really does have a mapping problem, but now at super obvious high stakes. So if you don't map properly, um, Two things. One is what you think your opponent has to what they actually have, um, which also includes what you think that they how they would react to what they have. Uh, but also, if you don't map properly what the end result of a hand is in terms of mapping that onto the quality of the decision process that led up to it, you're you're pretty much going to lose in the game. Um, so, kind of thinking about like kind versus wicked learning environments. Um, it felt like intuitively from what I had done in cognitive science that poker might be a kinder learning environment because the feedback is so fast. It takes like two minutes to play a hand of poker. So lots of decisions, lots of actions. But what I found was that uh, poker players actually, after learning some pretty big concepts, like, uh, oh, I could win without the best hand, right? So that's a really important concept to learn. They mostly sort of plateau and they're not actually learning well from the feedback that they're getting. Um, in all sorts of different ways. And I started to think about the way that even in very tight and fast feedback loops, the noisiness problem, right? This uh, this influence of kind of two forms of uncertainty, luck and hidden information, really get in the way of our ability to learn from experience. And that that's what ended up motivating me to write Thinking in Bats, which is really about that, that problem. Um, I kind of think about it as like a love letter to uncertainty. Um, and in particular, I'm thinking there a lot about the lack of correlation between decision quality and outcome quality, particularly because of the influence of luck in particular, although I do explore the hidden information problem a little bit. Um, and I kind of think about that as like a big, bigger idea book with a little bit of how kind of sprinkled in, like how, how would a poker player like address that problem? But it's not the main centerpiece of the book. So 
um, basically what happened was through conversations with my readers, they were saying, well, okay, so I, I, this thing that you said, I really resonated with me, lots of uncertainty. I get it. Um, so, so how would I make really good decisions in that, in those circumstances? And I kind of realized, like, I had left this whole sort of project on the table about how, what does a really good decision process look like? How do you actually make great decisions? And that ended up bringing me into this whole other exploration that I don't explore as deeply in thinking and bets, which is the hidden information problem. And what do you do when you're making decisions with incomplete information? And so it became like exploring this other kind of big idea, I think, but then also like really practical, like it's got thought experiments and tools that you can use and checklists and whatnot that would actually help someone to implement like a really good decision process and understand what it looks like. That's a really neat explanation for how you went from your first big idea book to this very practical guide to making better decisions, which, by the way, I love. I haven't mentioned that yet. It's a fantastic book. And everyone, oh, thank you. everyone listening or reading should get, get a copy. I wanted to ask you, there's so many lessons in your book. And I, I wanted to ask you, which of the many lessons you share is your favorite and why, since our listeners will only get a chance to hear sort of a few today. Oh, my gosh. I, you know, this is amazing. I have done so many podcasts and nobody has asked me that question. Uh, I love it when someone asks me a question I haven't thought about. Oh, gosh, this is like tell it, ask me which of my children is my favorite. This is very hard. Um, all of them is the answer. I love them all equally um, as relates to my children. But let me think more specifically about my book. I think my favorite concept in the book, and, and I think it's a really simple one, but it's really powerful and it does a lot of heavy lifting for improving your decision making is if you're trying to get feedback from somebody, if you're if you want somebody's opinion on something, don't tell them your opinion first. And it sounds so, you know, simple and, and almost like dumb when you hear it, except that nobody does it. Like when I send off, like I'll read an opinion piece or something and I'll send it off and I'll, you know, I'll give a dissertation on it. I'll be like, well, I read this and I think they're cherry picking the data and they're not thinking about this. And I really think the author's really biased. And I can I, can I even believe that someone was willing to say this out loud? What do you think? Um, and we do that not just about like opinion pieces or TV shows, but also about feedback when it comes to, you know, a sales strategy or whether we should make a particular investment or who we should hire or whatever. We're asking for people's feedback, but we're always offering the very feedback that we're trying to get from them in the form of our, our own opinion first. So I, I think that that's probably like the, my favorite concept. It actually doesn't show up until like, I think like chapter nine, but um, it takes a lot to get there. But I think that's probably my favorite thing. What's your favorite thing in the book? I don't know. I want to ask you. I should have asked you first, actually. If I were. No, I'm interviewing you. You don't get to do that. Well, actually, no, it's a good segue to my next question. My my favorite thing in the book, which is also very prominent in thinking in bets, is resulting. Uh, I think it's an incredibly important concept that people don't appreciate enough and that you explain beautifully. And I actually wanted to ask you if you could explain um, what resulting is and why anyone who's reading or listening to this interview should be concerned about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we know that when we're making decisions, um, most of them are not particularly like chess-like in character. And what I mean by that is that uh, there's always going to be information that you, you don't know. So, so we're always making decisions 
knowing very little compared to the universe of things that there are to know. Uh, and then there's a lot of luck involved. Like I could actually know everything I need to know about a coin. And if I flip it, I can know for certain what the probability of each of the three outcomes are. It will very occasionally land on its side. Um, but that does not mean that I know that it will land, say, heads on the next flip. So, so we also have the, and that's determined by luck. Even if you were to have perfect information, which you don't, there's still this influence on, of luck on, on the outcome. So if you think about a chess-like environment, um, you're losing strong influences of both of those things. In terms of the hidden information, I can see my opponent's position. Uh, they can see mine. Um, and in terms of luck, I, you know, you're not, there's no dice. You, you can't roll the dice. And then it's like, oh, seven, you get an extra bishop or snake eyes, checkmate, sorry. Um, so what that means is that in, in a game like chess, if I only know one thing about the game, which is how it ended. In other words, I didn't see any any of the game play, but I know that, um, you know, Taylor beat uh, Morgan. Then I know that Taylor made better decisions relative to Morgan. So, so that's when you sort of are removing those influences. But almost no decisions that you make in life are actually of that type. They're much more poker-like, meaning... Uh, there's lots of information you don't have. And we know in poker, you know, you can win with the worst hand. Uh, you can lose with the best hand and you can win with the best hand. You can lose with the best hand. All four of those things could be true. And so if I were to take the same thing and say, OK, we're not we're talking about small end problems here. Uh, if all I know is that you, Taylor and Morgan, played for an hour of poker and Taylor ended up winning, um, I know very little about what the quality of the underlying decisions are because it's hard hard for me to tell in that many iterations um, who was the better decision maker there. What did they win because they made better decisions or did they win uh, because of luck? But what the resulting problem is is that we act like we're playing chess all the time. So we act like there's lots and lots of signal in that outcome. So uh, an allocator whose uh, investments win at the end of the year, we assume that they must be a better decision maker than someone whose investments lose, despite the fact that the data does not necessarily bear that out. In poker, if you lose, uh, if someone loses, you say it was because they played poorly. Um, and we can see this sort of all over the place. I, I think that one of, the, one of the best examples of this actually was from 2016, which was um, uh, sort of twofold. One was just generally in terms of when you looked at what the markets were saying, uh, what the models were saying, these aren't the polls themselves, but what the models were saying, like Nate Silver's model, that uh, Clinton was, I think, ended about 65 or 70 percent, and Trump ended at about 30 to 35 percent. Um, when Trump won, everybody said, oh, the models were wrong, uh, as if the process to come to those sort of probabilistic judgments was wrong, because we now knew the results. And so therefore, um, and we do this all the time in our, our life, right? We take a job. We don't like it. I was stupid to take the job. And it's like I order a dish in a restaurant back in the before times. Why did I, I was so wrong to order that dish. How, you know, that was so stupid because obviously I, that was the wrong dish to order. It's, these things don't really make sense. But this is one of the biggest problems that we have with learning from experience. That was a great explanation. I think it's a really pernicious bias. I teach about it in my class at Wharton. And I think you explain it beautifully both in this book and in, in your prior book. So that was my answer to, to your question of what's my favorite thing in the book. Um, yeah. Another favorite that I wanted to ask you about, though, is if you could explain the power of negative thinking. Oh, yeah, sure. So uh, 
By the way, I just have to say, like, if I if I think about the thing where I'm sort of like, ooh, that was a good title. That chapter, The Power of Negative Thinking, I have to say I was a little, I was, I was kind of pleased with myself about that, I'm just going to say. Um, <laughs> well, just because there's so much written about the power of positive thinking. So, so let me explain what I mean. So sort of through that frame, obviously, you know, Napoleon Hill and Norman Vincent Peale. And then there's obviously a part of psychology that's really sort of in the positive thinking space. And, you know, the, the general idea, I mean, this is, simplified is you imagine a positive goal and then you imagine yourself succeeding along to the way to that goal. Um, and that will actually increase your chances of success. And there was a book called The Secret, which came out, I, th I think it was like maybe 2004 ish, 2005, somewhere in there. And it was an, uh, it was a, a Oprah's book club choice of the whatever. I don't know. Anyway, uh, it's kind of like th this book is the power of positive thinking on steroids. It's where that literature is naturally going to send somebody, which is that your thoughts have a magnetic quality. And so when you imagine good things happening, it will attract those things to you. Uh, and if you imagine bad things happening, that will also attract those bad things to you. So the idea is like, uh, if you imagine yourself in traffic in the morning, um, that will cause you to end up in traffic. And if you imagine your fiance proposing to you that that will make that happen, uh, and then they actually take it and work it backwards, which is if you're in traffic, you must have thought negatively about it, so which gets even wackier. But but the interesting thing is that obviously this mechanism of like um, magnetism to your thoughts that attract the exact objects that you're thinking about to you. That, I mean, that's like super, super wacky. But the fact that they're actually positing this causal relationship between negative thoughts and, and failure and positive thoughts and success is not wacky within that literature. In fact, it's fully implied um, and sometimes explicit that if you imagine failure, you will fail. And I think that the, the problem with this type of literature is that it's really confusing the destination planning with the route planning. Of course, you should have positive goals. No question. I, I would not ever question that. But the way to success is actually to think negatively in the sense of imagine the ways in which you might fail along the way to that positive goal. And the analogy that I give in the book is to say, look, we all used to use paper maps. We used to pull out the atlas when we were on the, the um, road trip. And that's like the physical instantiation of positive thinking. Here's the place that I want to get. I look at the map and the roads are all clear. And all I have to do is look at what's the shortest way to get there or the most scenic way to get there, depending on what my values are. And I will have clear roads along the way, clearly get there successfully. But nobody uses paper maps. Everybody uses Waze. And the reason is that Waze is like the app form of negative thinking. What Waze does is says, let me look ahead. And I'm going to see, like, where are their road closures? Where are their accidents? Uh, you know, where might there be uh, uh, just traffic that's slow? And I'm going to make you avoid those things. So it's thinking negatively in the sense of seeing where all the obstacles are going to be and then helping you to root yourself around those so that you can get to that positive goal, the destination that you ultimately want to achieve. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of, of negative thinking. And I think that that is actually the much more important thing to do in terms of um, decision making, particularly because most of the cognitive biases that that impede really good judgment are actually ones that are naturally too positive thinking. Things like illusion of control and overconfidence and gambler's fallacy and the better than average effect. All of these things really have to do with the fact that we tend to view, view us as having more control over our future and that our future will be much less stochastic 
than it actually is. And so I think that given that we're naturally sort of positive thinkers, we'd rather discipline that um, with negative thinking. And it's going to help us do something before we actually get, a, you know, come across the, the obstacle anyway. I love I love that uh, chapter. I think it's beautifully named and beautifully written. Um, oh, thank you. I want to I, I want to. Uh, ask one final meta question to wrap up. Oh no. Okay. It's going to be a two part. It, well, it's not that meta. Uh, I don't, don't, I don't, don't get too nervous. <laughs> it, it, it's a, a two part question. So the first part is who is your ideal reader for this book? And then the second is if um, that ideal reader left this book and remember just one thing, what would you want it to be? So the first one I'm going to say is, it's a, it's a really interesting question. If I can just talk about the writing process a second. When I first conceived this book, as I told you, I was having conversations um, with readers of Thinking and Bets who were really kind of asking me for something that was practical. What's a practical guide with practical tools in it that I could actually start to implement uh, a good decision process? So when I sold the book, um, it was a it was supposed to be the Thinking and Bets workbook. So I had originally conceived a reader of Thinking and Bets as my ideal reader. Um, now, you've read the book. It is in no way, shape or form the Thinking and Bets workbook. In fact, the material actually doesn't even cross that much with it. I mean, there's this broad conception of, of uncertainty, and I certainly open with, with resulting, but then it sort of goes off on its, its own paths. But anyway, so then what happened was, as, as I was thinking about it as a Thinking and Bets workbook, I had a conversation with my editor, uh, who you know quite well, because we... we share her, um, Nikki Papadopoulos. And she, she, I did not realize the implications of it, but she just said to me on the phone one day, she said, Annie, I just, I'm thinking that maybe we shouldn't tie this book so much to thinking in bets. And maybe this is a book that would have a much broader audience in its practical form of decision-making. And we should be thinking about someone who's, you know, in their twenties or thirties, super bright, hasn't read you know, thinking in bets or thinking fast and slow or, you know, the success equation or, you know, nudge or whatever, pick your own great book in that space. Um, and they just want to become a better decision maker. So what do you think about completely untethering it from thinking in bets and really trying to speak to that reader as well? And I was very, very excited by, by that idea, although I did not realize what the implications of it were, which was that I had to think about how can I make this book not boring, not a retread for someone who'd read Thinking and Bets, but also uh, something totally understandable to somebody who hadn't. Um, that was a very narrow alleyway I had to walk through. I hope that I walked through it well, because I think this book is really well suited to someone who's never read me or anything in this, the much better books than I've ever written in this space. But it's also, I think, not boring for someone who's read Thinking and Bets because it's really uh, grounding it in practical advice and also going into lots of new places. So I actually have two ideal readers in mind. That was a long way around to that, but I just wanted to say that's sort of how I got to that. And I didn't really realize the implications, but I was thinking about two different audiences at once and trying to speak to both of them. So that's the answer to the first part of the question. What I really want would want somebody to take away from this is that your gut is not really a decision tool. It's not reliable, no matter how reliable you think it is. And instead, what you should be really thinking about is that your decisions, in essence, are predictions of the future. Uh, because what you're really doing when you're thinking about different options is I've got a goal and which of these options is going to most likely result in a future that's going to actually cause me to achieve 
my goals, wh whatever those things are. So you're really a future predictor. So in that sense, like a crystal ball would be an amazing decision tool. Of course, they don't actually work in real life. So in order to really start thinking about the future, you have to be much more explicit about what you think the future will hold. And you need to be thinking about that probabilistically. And I think that that's the key. And not to be scared of this idea of probability. All that probability means is that there's more than one way that the future could unfold if I make a particular decision. And some of those ways are more likely than others. And I think that if you can approach probability that way, instead of remembering your hard math class and just realize that it's just when I make a choice, there's many ways things could unfold. And some of them are more likely than others. And some of them are more likely to advance me toward my goals. And some of them are more likely to cause me to retreat away from my goals. And that if that's all that you took from this book, I think you would be a much better decision maker for it. Couldn't agree with you more. I think there's many more lessons in this book than just that one, uh, which is why I loved reading it. But I, I think that's a great point, a meta point about a key thing that hopefully all your readers will take away that would make them better decision makers. Annie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And I'm really excited to be sharing uh, how to decide with our listeners and readers at Knowledge at Warden. So thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you. And I will always remember this as the interview where I was asked to say which of my children was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. I don't know if that's no. the recollection I want you to have. I am fun. joking. I am joking. <laughs> this was I so fun. <laughs> this was great. Thank you, Annie. I really appreciate it. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.